Well, it is good to be with all of you this morning as we near the finish line of our study through this incredible book, the first book in the Bible, Genesis. If you have a Bible, I would ask that you would open it with me to that passage that Aaron just read. It's from Genesis chapter 39. So go ahead and grab your Bible and go there. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of the Bibles provided in the pew in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, um, feel free to, got a little popping thing here this morning, feel free to take that home with you. So um, that is our gift to you this morning. It's been interesting. Over the last couple months, I may have to get a new microphone. Man, we got people running around. We're going to be okay. I don't even need a microphone. I'll, I can live without it. So over the last couple of months, I've had almost three identical conversations where I'm talking to somebody that hasn't read the Bible very much, and they've started reading, and they'll come to me three times in the last couple of months, and they've said, Ryan, we cannot believe how relevant the Bible is to daily life. I think many people in our culture assume that because of the Bible's age, that, that like all of the other ancient texts, it has zero connection to modern day life. But when you read the Bible, that couldn't be further from the truth. Today's passage is a great example of that as it deals with three temptations that I would submit to you are just as relevant today as they were thousands of years ago. I want you to listen to these three temptations. Number one, the temptation to misuse power. Number two, the temptation toward sexual immorality. This is in just kind of the temptation toward despair, toward looking at your life and your circumstances and just kind of giving up. Can we not all agree that those are still modern day problems? The problems that were back then are true today because they're evident in the human heart. Every single one of us, it doesn't matter what generation you're in, from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to Jesus himself, to each one of us, we all face the reality of temptation because we live in a world that is broken by sin. But what's important to remember here as we look at this text is that being tempted and sinning are not the same thing. I meet with people regularly and they'll be beating themselves up because they face temptation because they're being led in a certain direction that is contrary to God's word. And they have these feelings and they think, well, I've lost if I feel temptation. That's not the case. What we're going to see in this text is that what matters is what we do with temptation, how we respond to it because we're going to see some very different responses here in chapter 39. Last week, we were introduced to one of Jacob's sons, who was a teenager at the time named Joseph. He was 17 years old, and he was his father's favorite kid. Because of this, he was, uh, Jacob lavished all sorts of things on Joseph, including a coat. Joseph had these dreams that his family would one day bow down to him. And so for all these reasons, he was very hated by his brothers. On one occasion, as he was going to check on his brothers in the fields, they thought, this is our opportunity. Let's kill him. This is our chance. And so they came and they ripped his robe off. We talked all about that. They threw him in a pit, and they were going to leave him there to die. Well, thankfully, as it happened, there was a group, a caravan of merchants on their way to Egypt. And his brothers saw these merchants, and they thought, wait, this is an opportunity for profit. And so they took Joseph out of the pit 
and they sold him to these individuals going to Egypt. And so when we get to chapter 39, we, this is years later, we catch up with him, and, and what we find in this text is that God had blessed him in a tremendous way. In this text, we are going to see what I would say is the classic illustration from the Old Testament on how to deal with temptation when it comes up. If we could, we would take three weeks to go over this. Unfortunately, we only have one. And so I want to try to answer two very basic questions from our text this morning. Number one is this, what are the temptations? Number two, how does Joseph respond? And so let's look at that first question. What are the temptations that Joseph faces in these verses? A lot of times when you read it, you only think of one, right? Sexual immorality, adultery. But when you look at the text, there's actually three. There's three times where Joseph could have turned his back on God and done what was um, not a right thing to do. And yet, each time, he resists them. And so what is the first? The first is the temptation to misuse power. Now, the scriptures are clear that power in and of itself is not evil. In fact, in the book of Genesis, we've seen over and over again that our God is a God of power, that he can do anything that he wills. He's a God of power. Not only that, he raises up people into positions of power and influence. You read through the Bible over and over again. He tells them how to to yield that influence and power. But a look at history, a look at our modern news cycle also tells us about the destructive danger of power on a person. What can power do? Oftentimes when a person is raised into a position of influence, what you find is that their opportunities and their vulnerability toward temptation rises right along with it. And that's what we see happen in chapter 39. In verse 2, it says that God was with Joseph, that he became successful, and that he was placed into the home of this man named Potiphar. Now, that's a big deal. When it says that he was the captain of the guard, you need to realize that what that, that makes him the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Egypt. That makes him one of the most powerful men in the most powerful army on the face of the planet at that time. This is a man of great power. By God's hand, his blessing, he's put Joseph and all of Potiphar's family into the center of power of that day. How would he yield it? Well, you see two very different examples. On the one hand, you have Potiphar's wife. She was a woman with unbelievable power at her disposal, and she seeks to use it. Look at verse 7 and verse 12. She repeats this phrase to Joseph, lie with me. Now, I wish our English translations were able to better convey the forcefulness of what he's saying. she's saying here. These are two Hebrew words, and both of them are imperatives. They're commands. And so in essence, what she says here is, Joseph, sex now. That's what she's getting at. You hear that, and you think that's like a, what you do with a pet. Sit, roll over, sex now. We can laugh at that. But you think about that. This is a gross misuse of the power that she had over her servant. Lie with me now. She falls prey to a very prevalent temptation. And it's one that I want us to think about this morning. Look at your own heart. It's this belief that the power and influence that we have should be exercised to meet our selfish interest, to meet our needs, to look out for number one. We hear of this happening almost daily in the news. You hear stories of that politician or that celebrity or that that CEO who has misused power in order to get ahead. 
or in order to take advantage of, of the people that are under them. Uh, the recent college admission scandal is, a, is an example of, of what that looks like. But we need to understand that you do not have to be a celebrity to fall prey to this temptation. Every single one of us in this room have power. We have influence. It comes in the form of our time. It comes in the, the form of our positions, of our money. We all have it. The question is, how will we use it? She seeks to use it for her own good, which makes what Joseph does does in this text exemplary. You look at verses 3 to 5. What becomes clear is that he used every bit of the power that he had, not to elevate himself, but instead to bless and serve the people that are around him. He uses the power, the position that God has put him in to bless Potiphar, to bless Potiphar's household. These people that didn't even acknowledge God, God used Joseph to bring blessing to them. I think there's a a central point that, that many of us who live and work and breathe in San Francisco need to hear, and that's this. I would submit to you that the people that God uses most are not just pastors and missionaries, people in positions. The men and women that God uses most are those who take whatever power God has given them and they use them for the sake of others and not for themselves. That's exactly what Joseph does in this text. He was not a preacher. He did not sign up for this little missionary encounter in Egypt. And yet, he was used in his ordinary labor position to bring blessing to those who God wanted to bless. As you think about your own influence and power, ask this question, how are you using it? Are you falling prey to the temptation that you think, all the power I have, the influence, this is for me. This is primarily here to be exercised for my good, for my benefit. Or do you look at your power and say, no, 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 this is from God, and it's used to bless and serve others. It's the first temptation we see. The second is the one that's clear to all of us. It's the temptation towards sexual immorality, sex. Just like power, sex is not an evil thing. On the contrary, God created sexual desire. You think about it, God gave men and women the ability not only to have sex, but to enjoy sex. If you don't believe me, I'll give you a little homework this week. Go read the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Go, if you only want to read one chapter, read Proverbs chapter 5. God created sex. He gave it to us as an incredible gift, but here's the thing. He designed sex to be enjoyed within the boundaries of an all-in, committed marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. He said, this is a gift that I'm giving, but it's to be lived out within this kind of relationship. Anything less is a distortion of this great gift. Now, when you think about sexual temptation, I want you to notice that that it starts very subtly for Potiphar's wife. Look at verse 7. At the end of verse 6, it said that that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. I love that phrase, cast her eyes. When it says that, it doesn't mean that she just looked at him and then kind of looked away, thought, okay, he's handsome and I'll move on with my day. No. What it means is that she looks at him with longing, with desire. In other words, he becomes the object of, of her imagination. She begins to think, what would it be like to be with Joseph? She begins to look for opportunities to be around Joseph more and more so that he can see her, so that she can see him. 
He, she allows these feelings to linger that should have been reserved for her husband. She cast her eyes on Joseph. There's an old song that I learned growing up in Sunday school. Some of you have probably heard it, but it starts out this way. The lyrics go like this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's so much truth in the words of that song. This is the reason that the Bible in Colossians 3.12 says to set your mind on things from above. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says this. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Sadly, I've walked with many individuals who have had their lives and their families devastated by sexual sin. As a pastor, we kind of get a front row seat to many of these situations, and I'm telling you over and over again, what I hear is this, I wish I would have stopped at that first glance. It started with something that was pretty innocent, and yet it grew, and my mind began to linger there. I began to allow my imagination to go there and stay there, and it continued and continued, and then finally, what I had only thought in my mind I acted out physically. Well, that's what happens with Potiphar's wife. She cast her eyes, but what does it lead her to? Joseph, lie with me. Thankfully, Joseph doesn't fall prey to this temptation. Look at verse 8. It says, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, you appreciate Joseph's boldness here. I mean, he calls sin for what it is. He says, what you're asking me to do is both wicked, and it's a sin against God. I would imagine that every single one of us in this room, whether it's adultery, whether it's sex outside of marriage, pornography, homosexuality, whatever it is, I have no doubt that each one of us have felt the pull towards sexual temptation. We know what Joseph is tempted with in this passage. It's radically important that we understand what does the Bible teach about sex? Well, there's a lot of places you could go to get that. There's many different ones. We're not going to do all of that today, but one very important one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you're, you're free to turn over there. It's going to be on the screen in just a moment. But in this passage, the Apostle Paul is talking to Christians who are living in Corinth. What you need to know about Corinth is that it was just as a sexualized culture as the city of San Francisco is, okay? It was a very sexualized city. And yet this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 16. It says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? I love this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So you'll notice at the very beginning that when it comes to sexual sin, it's not just adultery. 
He's talking to two individuals that are not married to one another, nor are they married to anyone else. And yet, what does he say? Flee sexual immorality. Why? Because of verse 16. Look at it. The purpose of sex is to create oneness. True, genuine oneness. In other words, sex was designed by God to be an expression of this true oneness where we say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you in every aspect of my being. I'm committed to you relationally, socially, economically, legally. I am all in on this relationship. We are one. Where you have that kind of relationship, just think about this. Sex deepens intimacy. It deepens trust. It deepens uh, vulnerability. It is what honors God. But when it comes to sex outside of marriage, what you're actually saying is what? I want physical oneness with you, but I don't want to be one with any other part of your life. I don't want it. I don't want to commit myself to you. I don't want to serve you. I don't want to have expectations put on me from you. I want your body and the pleasure you can bring me, but I don't want you. That's what that's saying. A pastor named Tim Keller says it this way. He says, sexual immorality is desiring pleasure without a commitment to the person. You look at this text and what becomes very clear is that Potiphar's wife was not interested in Joseph the person. How do you know that? Because the moment he refuses her, what does she do? She gets him put in jail. She doesn't love Joseph. She wants what Joseph can offer her. Wanting pleasure without a commitment to a person is the opposite of love, which is the call upon a Christian. I realize, I, I realize that this may seem very old-fashioned to some of you in this room. You may say, Ryan, this isn't a big deal. Why are you making such a big deal? Why are you making me feel guilty this morning? I can promise you that's not my goal. My desire this morning is to help you to see that sex is a greater gift than this self-centered, pleasure-focused idol that our culture has created. It is an incredible gift from God. Anything less than what he's given is a distortion, and that's why he calls it wickedness. He says, do not ask me to sin against my God. In just a moment, we're going to look at how Joseph responds to that, but let's finish it out by looking at this third temptation, the temptation to despair. And here's, here's how this plays out in the life of a Christian many times. It goes like this. You do all the right things. You're generous to people. You use your power to love and serve and bless others. You, you resist all the temptations. You do all the right things, and what happens? Your life still doesn't go like you think it should. And so you turn, you say, God, I didn't date a non-believer. I did all this, and yet I still lost my job. I still don't get to be married. I, I still didn't get this. I still lost my health. I still lost my loved one. God, how can this be? Imagine how easy it would have been for Joseph to go there in his mind. He had been betrayed. He had a good attitude through the betrayal of his brothers. He's in Egypt. Things are finally looking like they're going well, and what happens? He does the right thing. He resists temptation, and yet, boom, he's in prison. We read about his prison cell in Psalm 10, verse 18. It says, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Imagine yourself sitting in that jail cell after doing the right thing. 
There are many people that I've walked with who have done all the right things, but then something breaks in their life and they say, you know what, God, I'm through. They give in to the temptation of despair character of God. At the heart of this temptation to despair is a lack of trust in the character of God. Because, you know, we have something in this text that Joseph didn't have. We can have a perspective of Joseph's life that we cannot have on our own. And that's an important gift. We know that if Joseph had not gone to that prison, the king's prison, if she, Potiphar's wife, had not done this evil thing to him, we know that Joseph never would have saved his family nor the thousands of people living in Egypt. Because a famine was coming and God had to put him in that position. Yes, he may have been successful in Potiphar's house, but he ultimately wouldn't have brought the salvation that God wanted to bring. God's character, even in this jail cell, was good. And I think the strong point in this text, it says, but God was in with Joseph. He wasn't just with him in the blessing. He was also with him in the jail. So as we think about these things, how does Joseph resist these temptations? How does he live an exemplary life in the midst of facing so many temptations of misuse of power, sexual immorality, of despair? How does he do it? I want us to close by just quickly giving you three words of encouragement from this text. As you think about your own temptations, I want to encourage you to do three things. Number one, what did Joseph do? Be decisive. Joseph was unbelievably decisive when temptation came his way. When Potiphar's wife commands him to lie with her, what does he do? Does he say, well, let me just think about it. Let let me just go and weigh the the pros and cons. Let me go search the internet. Let me make sure and see if anybody's looking. What does it say he did? He immediately refused. Later, you get a little further in the text, and when he has the option of even running out with his clothes off or lingering to see how it played out, what does he do? Does Does he walk away? Does he linger with Potiphar's wife? No, it says he flees. He ran as fast as he could. Joseph, when it comes to temptation, was decisive. He was prepared for when temptation comes, and when it came, he responded immediately. This morning, I have to ask you, are you being decisive with the temptations that you're facing? I don't know what temptation you're facing today. I don't know what area Satan's drawing you toward sin, drawing you toward uh, disobedience to God. But I have to ask, are you being decisive with it or are you playing with it? Are you just kind of lingering? As your pastor who loves you, I'm just telling you, if you linger, if you allow that temptation to be in your imagination, if you're sitting with it, if you're playing with it, you have already lost the battle. That temptation is going to grab hold of you. You're going to be led down the road if you do not be decisive. Some of you this morning, what God is calling you to do is to draw a line in the sand and say, no more. I'm going to be decisive. I'm going to fight this sin. But here's the problem. Does temptation just come once and then go away? No, right? It keeps coming. And so not only do we need to be decisive, but second encouragement, be determined. You look at the text, verse 10, it says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to even be with her. Do you hear that? She came after him day after day. We need to all understand that our no to temptation today does not mean victory over that temptation tomorrow. They're going to come back. That's why Jesus says to pray this regularly, lead me not into temptation. Jesus knows that we have an enemy that doesn't take days off. 
First Peter chapter 5 says these words. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Here's what I've come to learn. Satan is unbelievably strategic when it comes to temptation. I think all of you know that. He knows where you're weak. He knows that your weakness is probably not my weakness. He knows that even the timing of your weakness is not the same as mine. I've learned over time that for me, Saturday or Sunday afternoons, Monday mornings, are the times where I'm most vulnerable to sin. I'm exhausted. I'm spiritually tired. I'm physically tired. And those are the moments where I have to be careful. You see, Joseph, he had a plan in place, and he lived by it day after day. It says that he would not speak to her, nor would he even be with her. Joseph was determined to have boundaries, and then he lived by those boundaries. So this morning, I want you to think, what about your temptation? I, as your pastor, I don't know what you're facing, but I do know you're facing temptations. Are you determined to put boundaries in place? If you are struggling with pornography this morning, do you have the boundary of of covenant eyes on your computer installed so that what you look at is sent to other people that care about you so that they can keep you accountable, so that they can encourage you? If you struggle with gluttony or maybe with with overspending money or, or, or drinking or even drugs this morning, do you have boundaries in place? Do you have boundaries in place with that person that you find attractive that is not your spouse? Do you have people that have an all-access pass to your life that can ask you the hard Do you have a boundary? Do you ask, who are you when no one's looking? Do you have a boundary? Do you have a plan? Are you determined to battle temptation in your life? If you're not, again, that goes back to that decisive. You're playing with it. We have to be determined. We have to be decisive. But here's the last one. And friends, this is the most important one. The reality is we can be as determined as we want to be. We can be as decisive as we want to be. If we do not have this third one, we are going to fall into temptation over time. And that is this. We have to be devoted. So many people think about self-control, and they think it looks something like this. If I'm going to be self-controlled, I'm going to look at my heart. I'm going to see those desires that, that could cause trouble in my life, and what am I going to do? I'm going to suppress them. I'm going to push them back. If they come, I'm going to, I'm going to, by willpower, I'm going to push them back over and over again. That's not what we see happen in this text. When Joseph is tempted, he does not say no because he's really good at suppressing sexual desire. He says no because in his heart, there is a greater affection for God than the sexual desire that he has. He fights sexual desire with a love for his Lord. Remember, we'll look at what he says in verse 9. It says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This isn't a matter of willpower. Our will will only be strong for so long. Joseph attacks this desire with a heart of total devotion to God. He looks at his life. He says, after all that God has done for me, after all that God is to me, how could you think that I would do this wicked thing and so sin against him. My point is this, the primary way we fight temptation towards sin is not by just saying no. It's by growing in our devotion and our love for Jesus Christ. That's how we fight temptation. I love the picture of this that we get back in chapter 29. It was the picture of um, Joseph's dad, Jacob, when he fell in love with Rachel. 
If you remember, he fell in love with Rachel, and yet in order to marry her, Rachel's father said, you have to work for me for seven years. I want you to think about that. Over 2,500 days of hard labor. Think about the self-control that that would take. And yet when you come to chapter 29, verse 20, I love what it says. It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and yet they seemed to him but a few days. How can that be? I have no doubt Jacob had all the desires that we have, a desire for leisure, a self-pity. He wanted a break. He wanted all those things. What enabled him to have that kind of self-control? The end of that verse, it says this, they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Jacob desired many things, but none of them compared to his desire for Rachel. Friends, do you realize that in your heart, There's going to be temptations. There's going to be a ton of desires. But what you need most is for Jesus to be the ultimate desire of your life. To know him, to have fellowship with him, to walk with him. If that is the driving desire of your life, all of the other desires will be ordered in their place. The only way we fight temptation is not by just saying no. It's by growing in our devotion to Jesus. That's what we see in the life of Joseph. You say, Ryan, but what if my story isn't like Joseph's? What if I'm more like Potiphar's wife? What would Jesus say to me? Well, friend, I would say this. Jesus would say to you the same thing that he said to the adulterous woman that he came to in John chapter 8. As he's standing over this adulterous woman caught in her sin, the crowd around him is, is waiting for Jesus to say stone her, which was the punishment for adultery in that day. And yet Jesus looks at everyone around. He says, you who have not sinned, throw the first stone. The men around her begin to look around and slowly put down their stones and they walk away. And then Jesus says these words to this woman. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I love that because here's the thing. Jesus calls sin, sin. He doesn't say what you did wasn't wrong. Sexual sin isn't a sin. No, he says, go and sin no more. What you did was sin. And yet, what does he say? Neither do I condemn you. How can that be? If a person is guilty, they need to be condemned. But Jesus knows something that she doesn't. Jesus knows that he's about to go and take the ultimate stoning on her behalf. Jesus is about to go to the cross where he is going to be condemned, not only for her sin, but for the sin of all of us in this room. Jesus knows that he's about to go and take the punishment for sin that she deserved, that we all deserve. And so Jesus looks at her and she says, go and sin no more, I do not condemn you. Friends, do you realize that Jesus can say the same thing to each of you today? He says, go, sin no more, repent of that sin, turn from that sin, that sin is destroying you. But I don't condemn you. I've taken your condemnation upon myself. Friends, if we realize what he's done for us, when you come to the point where you see that he voluntarily gave his life for you because of the love he has for you, when you realize that he is the risen and sovereign Lord of all lords, king of all kings, when you realize that he's the one that will never leave you or forsake you, when you realize that he's with you in the the blessings and he's with you in the pit, when you realize that your life is in his hand and that he's working all things for good, when you know him, it's impossible to love anything more than him. 
And that's why we as his people desire him. It's why we as his people should devote our lives to knowing him, to spending time in the word, spending time in prayer, spending time with Christian community. Church, as we look at this passage and you think about your own temptations, it's not enough just to say no. I pray that we would be a church who pursues after Jesus together with all that we are. We have an opportunity to do that today. If you would, let's pray together as we close our time. This morning, we're going to give you just a time to respond to the Lord with whatever he's put on your heart. This is going to be a time to just pray. Some of us this morning, we we look at the temptations we're facing, and we know this morning we're playing with that temptation. So this morning, we want to give you some time to have some time to pray, to confess your sin. Confess that you're lingering in that temptation. You're allowing it to dominate your imagination. You aren't dealing with it decisively. Would you confess that this morning? Would you turn from it? Some of you have already acted. You've lived out that temptation. You've fallen again. This morning, would you know that Jesus is here and he's saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Would you receive the forgiveness that he has for you today? Would you go and would you live differently? Would you fight your sin? Would you ask for his help? This morning, each one of us, what we need is a greater devotion to him where he becomes the overwhelming treasure of our lives. When that's true, the other desires, it's not that they're not there, but they're under him. And so this morning, would you just go to this God who loves you, who's done everything you ne- is needed for your forgiveness? You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go and work it to get God to be on your good side again. No, God loves you right where you're at. Would you turn to him this morning? Put your trust in him. Would you battle some temptation with him right at your side?